This is News From Nowhere. I'm Corey Pine. Welcome to my new apartment. It's a little quieter. The hiring of Brett Stevens at the New York Times is a signal by the liberal establishment that it's prepared to capitulate to key elements of the Trump agenda, especially economic and energy policy. American liberals are saying they'll be fine to let Goldman Sachs and Exxon carry on running those. It's also a signal that they will not be backing a left populist in the next big Democratic primary fight, no matter how popular such a candidate might be with the American public, particularly the younger generation that's got no money, no health care, a big fucking pile of student debt, 12 roommates, four jobs, three useless degrees, no prospects, and now a police record for rioting in the street. Anyway, I have guess. In this episode, I'll be talking about the populist establishment conflict with Michael Brooks, an online radio host who co-wrote a piece on the subject in The Baffler. Michael is a co-host of The Majority Report, as well as Two Dope Boys in a Podcast, two fun shows you can find at majority.fm. His April 20 Baffler piece was written with David Slavic, a community-building consultant in Washington, D.C., the story was titled No Time for a Negative Peace. It's about the failure of an institutional liberal party in apartheid South Africa as compared to the radical African National Congress and what lessons that history has for American politics. I'll read this excerpt to set it up and then bring Michael in. The U.S. Democratic Party's, quote, resistance remains ineffective due to some of the same ideological and temperamental pathologies that affected South Africa's moderate official opposition a party few Americans know even existed, for the good reason that it didn't accomplish much. The Progressive Federal Party, the predecessor to the Democratic Alliance Party, which still operates in South Africa, was not able to reverse apartheid policies or restrain the massive abuses of human rights against black South Africans and the killings the National Party government engaged in during its whole time in office. It failed to understand that solely, quote, being right is not a strategy for winning political battles. While it opposed apartheid, it complied with apartheid laws banning multiracial parties. It rose to the status of official opposition in the 1970s and exploited divisions within the ruling National Party by appealing to anti-communist sentiments while promoting a platform intended to strengthen the economic position of white voters. But it was never able to alter the apartheid system or to help allow the political participation of banned groups like the African National Congress. Democratic leadership in the United States needs to understand that it can get with the energy of the streets or find itself in the same shameful historical waste bin. Now, here's Michael. So that's a pretty damning assessment of the progressive federal party. In what, in what ways was it like the Democratic Party in the U.S. today? Well, the, I mean, you know, first you've got to acknowledge, obviously, uh, there's very significant historical differences and we're, you know, not in an apartheid system. Um, and, uh, you know, we're in a different historical context, but what kind of leapt out at me was, you know, even as there are radical differences, there are disturbing parallels, right? Um, we have an administration obviously that has profited, enormously politically from overt xenophobia, bigotry, um, and uh, flirts, and sometimes I would say beds white nationalism. Uh, then we have, you know, a Republican Congress, which, you know, we've allowed to become quote-unquote mainstream, but of course has this incredibly ruthless agenda um, with regards to essentially just upward financial distribution. And, you know, going back and looking at what actually ended apartheid, what actually um, reversed, you know, this great historical calumny in South Africa was actually revolutionary politics and the end diplomatic politics. And, you know, there, there was, of course, in the 80s and 90s, a negotiated transition out of apartheid. But without the radicalism of African National Congress, without spontaneous uprisings, without South African Communist Party, there wouldn't have been an end to that system. And looking at the progressive federal party is this kind of, you know, historical oddity in the sense that there was this party that did oppose apartheid. It had leaders like a woman named Helen Sussman who 
you know, in the historical context, she did some great things. Uh, you know, she advocated for the prisoners in Robben Island. She met with Mandela many times, but, you know, was the sort of definitive proof that basically a pro-market centrist party that compiled with the basic frameworks of apartheid, but opposed uh, the system in a, from a kind of soft centrist liberal perspective was really not up to the task of defeating the system. And the third thing to kind of factor in here is that, you know, this is also kind of using some of the rhetoric against certain parts of the quote unquote resistance back against them in the sense that there is a contingent of people who You mean like the hashtag sa- resistance in the US the hashtag right now. Resistance yeah. type of people, exactly. Where there's this kind of uneasy tension between on one hand people who want to say that you know they've been using analogies and historical comparisons with trump that maybe even people like you and i might feel uncomfortable with like you know comparing him to hitler for a long time or you know people who've been on one hand very 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 uh explicit and exercised and excited about the kind of unique historical illiberal threat of the Trump administration, while at the same time essentially wanting to carry on the same kind of political mediocrity that has characterized modern democratic politics. So I I kind of thought there was something of a historic, like there's an irony there. And this is an example of a party historically that would share a lot of similarities with Democrats that actually was facing what, you know, people might say the Trump administration could be its worst. And I actually think apartheid South Africa is a more useful comparison in some respects than, you know, Nazi Germany. And this is what happened when they went up against the extreme right with institutional market centrist politics. They were essentially a non-factor. I'm getting really riled up thinking about all the ways that the Democrats in the U.S. today are not up to the task. But I want to I want to hash out the historical comparisons a little bit more. When you talk about the Progressive Federal Party in South Africa as um, an institutional party, do you know much about like how they were funded? What was their base? Like what what sort of political uh, and economic uh, institutions allowed them to exist and supported them? As, as a minority opposition party? Um, they did have they did have a fair amount. I mean, you know, Helen Sussman was Jewish. Uh, there was definitely support in the Jewish community in South Africa, which occupied a, a difficult middle ground in that country. I mean, you know, they were still considered white and allowed to participate. But as you can imagine, it wasn't exactly like Jewish people were, you know, super popular in a white nationalist society. Uh, and a lot of, of course, a lot of Jews ended up playing, you know, pretty significant role in liberation. People like, you know, Joe Slovo and Ronnie Casseroles, and they were often elected from very wealthy constituencies um, in, in major cities. Also, groups of people that were, you know, a bit more cosmopolitan and maybe a bit more concerned about what South Africa was as a country um, and how it was viewed in the world and whether it kind of fit in the kind of family of liberal democracies, which, you know, for all of their racism uh, and internal colonies were not practicing formal apartheid in the 1970s or 80s, obviously. And, and, and to that, going back to the question of funding, the ANC, by contrast, was an armed socialist party that had some funding, at least from the Soviet Union, Right. Yeah, I, well, this, the ANC was always a broad church party. Um, the ANC definitely shared a tremendous amount of overlap with South African Communist Party, and there was a lot of shared membership. But the ANC was also a party of, um, you know, the sort of black South African uh, professional class to some degree, to the extent that that was allowed to exist and people were involved in liberation politics from more of just a, you know, purely anti-colonial, anti-racist perspective without necessarily a social commitment. Um, the, the modern ANC has, you know, many predatory capitalists and people that are quite comfortable with that system. And when they came to power, they actually embraced kind of very orthodox economics of the time. But yeah, I mean, it, 
they did receive significant funding from the Soviet Union. They did engage in armed struggle. In the 1980s, during negotiations, uh, some you know international gold and, and mining companies, well, you wouldn't, I wouldn't say they funded the ANC, but they certainly footed the bill for a lot of like meetings at British you know, estates between ANC and Afrikaner negotiators. Um, and you know they 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 made the whiskey supply uh, unlimited. But in the but through the 80s and through most of their struggle, um, the ANC received funding from the Soviet Union. So the fault lines that you're describing between the ANC and the and the Progressive Federal Party are they're racial, they're economic in terms of not only where they got their support but how they viewed the role of the market, um, and they're also. Uh, was a difference in, in what they were demanding in, in terms of like their negotiating position, right? Yep. And the ANC demanded more. They demanded endo-apartheid and they were willing to fight for it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the progressive federal party probably, you know, I think people like Helen Sussman did want an end to apartheid, you know, laws. But, you know, the the, the big distinction to me would be and I and I actually I interviewed Ronnie Casserles recently, who was a co-founder of the ANC's armed wing and and uh, you know ended up serving in the governments of Mandela and Mbeki, and is actually now it's funny now again he's sort of back to the streets and opposing the current ANC government um, from a left perspective. But you know he I asked him about the federal the Progressive Federal Party and you know he said he voted for them in his first election and his parents voted for them. But you know he's coming up during the Sharpeville massacre, which is in the early '60s, a mass killing of you know unarmed black South African demonstrators. And I think that it's just this, you know, basic temperamental difference of is this something that can be overcome institutionally um, and we can, you know, condemn and work against in parliament? Or is this just a fundamental, you know, sickness that we need to to battle um, outside of the system? The other thing that I would say is also really practical. In the apartheid system, there's no racial part. Multiracial parties are not officially allowed, and there's not like black members uh, of parliament. So, if you're like a young, you know, talented black political operative, I mean, even just from a, I mean, this is way more prosaic than a struggle for national liberation. But even if you're just saying like, hey, I, I want to like join a party where I can actually exercise leadership and you know, be a part of, um, it's going to bite definition be outside of the system and you know people like casseroles didn't feel comfortable being sort of one foot in one foot out they you know they saw it for what it was it, it it's painful because we see the failure you know in the 2016 election and we see the dynamic still going on today where it's like there's now this line of attack on bernie sanders and, and presumably all of his supporters that right. well, he's not a democrat <laughs> this is right. the most like, I just, I know you have a question, but I just have to say, I mean, and I have a, I mean, there is no version, and I say that really advisedly, because I'm about to say normal person, and by normal, I just mean someone who is not like, you know, incubated at Think Progress, or, you know, conceived at the floor of Brookings, or whatever, you know, whatever. There is no person on the face of the earth who has any type of investment in politics but is just a sort of normal paid-up member of the human race who cares how Bernie Sanders IDs himself officially as a Democrat or not. It is one of the most demented, bizarre lines of attack I've ever seen in my life. But, but anyways, is, go, but ahead, this, go ahead. Sorry. But this is where we're at. I mean, he was – okay, yes, I, I got to rant about this for a second. I mean, he was almost the Democratic nominee for president, and now they're t- he's not a Democrat. But is it is it – Although the the specifics don't match up, there's no perfect historical analog to anything we're experiencing now. But right. is it this view? Right. Is it this view of the market that is really at the fundamental heart of the dispute uh, that on the left and and with liberals and about the Democratic Party? And isn't that the same issue that was in South Africa? Is the view of the market, the view of capital, and what its what its role in the party is? I mean, I think I think yes and no. I mean, obviously, you know, the, you in in South Africa and during apartheid, that level of you know obvious 
you know, and, and of course, America is is a profoundly racist country. And I, 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 you know, really appreciate Chris Hayes's new book, Colony in a Nation and Policing Practices. I'm not trying to get away from your, your, your question. I think there are some core differences um, just in terms of the realities of race and how it plays out. And, and, and you know, I, I guess, though, all the caveats aside, I do think that the market dimension is very important. And I think that the, the irony of, of South Africa in some respects is that the ANC actually won the struggle for racial liberation and then essentially succumbed on the economy. Uh, and, and under Mandela and, and Becky, there's complexity to that. And, you know, their hand was forced. And I think that they made a good faith effort in many other areas to try to strike what was achievable at the time. And now under Jacob Zuma, the ANC is essentially like in, in other ironic ways, actually like Trump in the sense of just running a kind of pure crony capitalist operation, which really is about very kind of narrow personal enrichment. Uh, but I do think that, you know, in the United States, there is a market dimension. There's also an institutional respect dimension that really struck me. What do you mean because, by that? Well, look, if we're going in and we're dealing with the most dangerous president we've ever had and a radical extremist governing party, then that would mean that you vote against every single nomination, period. That means that you would start to look at who you're up against, not as someone that you disagree with, but can play tennis and lobby with, but as people that are, you know, fundamentally threatening and illiberal. And I think that that was the kind of thing that struck me with the South Africa comparison was, you know, on one hand, you're recognizing that there's this obscene system that is a global embarrassment, violation of human rights, but at the same time, you can still debate it in parliament. And I'm not suggesting in the United States that there's like an ANC option. It's a different historical moment. But I think that, you know, if we're looking at it more holistically, Donald Trump is actually the nat natural fulfillment of a market system um, in some respects. And then also in apartheid South Africa, you know, it, it was framed very much with the collapse of apartheid that, you know, this system of racial uh, discrimination was antithetic to capital, but it actually wasn't. I mean, you know, it benefited a hell of a lot of white people if they had no racial competition <laughs> and it benefited a whole lot of industries that there's, you know, easily exploitable labor. Uh, so I think that in, in one hand, institutionally, you're not willing to, both parties are not willing to fully face and deal with institutionally the radicalism of the threat they face. And in both cases, um, the market is not separate from the obscenity that they see. It actually interacts with it and supports it. Let's talk about the relationship here, going back a little bit historically to third-way politics. Now, the apartheid uh, sure. referendum was in 92, right? And ANC was elected to power in 94. Do I have that right? Mm -hmm. Same year that Bill Clinton won, brought in this third way wave. Um, what was the what was the third way response to uh, end of apartheid? What was its interaction with the ANC? Um, what was it supportive before coming to power from abroad? You know, I, I don't know the specifics of Bill Clinton as governor of Arkansas, but I would say by the 1980s. Um, it was a pretty broad-based, mainstream Democratic position, even a fair amount of Republicans. By that point, we're on record with opposing the Reagan administration's, uh, you know, essential policy of appeasement of apartheid, which, of course, was wrapped up in anti-communism. Bill Clinton and Nelson Mandela had a very close relationship. The way the third way interacted with the ANC was very weird, because on one hand, you basically had... Um, you know, the ANC pretty much was in a position to come to power. A lot of them were, you know, Marxists, communists, at the very least kind of social democrats, and they're achieving political liberation at the same time that we're in, you know, the end of history moment. And they're getting flown to Davos and they're getting seminars by Wall Street firms and the World Bank and they're getting, you know, really indoctrinated with the there is no other path. Um, and incidentally, the South African apartheid regime has racked up accumulated debt and other you know, macroeconomic problems, which you're going to need to clean up. So 
I, I think, you know, the third way definitely through those kind of interactions supported the ANC in essentially, you know, going from a radical liberation party with partners deep in the, you know, in the South African Communist Party and in the labor movement, and then essentially um, really governing in a version of a third way government. Oh, they, so it sounds like you're saying they helped the third way politicians in the West help bring the ANC out of its socialist roots. And and, and, and there was shared consultants, uh, you know, Stan Greenberg, who's a political strategist for Bill Clinton uh, and Tony Blair. He advised Nelson Mandela and Thabo Mbeki. Uh, and then I think on the flip side, I think that, you know, particularly Mandela, obviously, um, not so much other figures in the ANC, even though the ANC actually has a number of figures that you could, you know, sort of certainly accredit a real kind of heroism to, obviously, including actually even a guy like Jacob Zuma, who's, you know, pretty awful now, took a lot of personal physical risk in, in liberation. Um, obviously, Nelson Mandela. People like Tony Blair and Bill Clinton kind of used him as almost like a symbol of a certain type of, you know, kind of regal moralism and non-racialism that they would want to attach themselves to. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton being Bill Clinton, he maintained a tight relationship with Mandela to the very end. Like Mandela never would ever, never disavowed his relationship with Fidel Castro. Right. Um, but, you know, he also never disavowed his relationship with Gaddafi and some of the kind of like, liberation politics stayed through in terms of attitudes about foreign policy. And I know that, you know, when the invasion of Iraq was launched, you know, Mandela basically said that this is a, you know, I think he said George Bush was plunging the world into a Holocaust and that his brain didn't work properly, which was no surprise that. if you really know Mandela and his history. But I think for a lot of people, it just was like, oh, he was the guy who was in jail who didn't like racism. And now he hangs out with the Spice Girl. That was a shock for them. It, you mentioned Tony Blair. I just saw a headline today that I think is pertinent. He, Blair is now saying to the British public, vote Tory or Lib Dem where they are open-minded on Brexit, rather than support Jeremy Corbyn in the Labor Party. And this, right. this, is, this, was, right. this, this was on my mind when I asked, is capital the dividing line? Because I, I can't honestly yeah. think of a, of a reason why... Our, our modern Western institutional liberal parties would be so opposed to candidates like Corbyn and Sanders, except for their views on capital and finance. Jeremy Corbyn will not rule out prosecuting Tony Blair in Iraq. So, you know, in some ways it's like, I would imagine you wouldn't support voting for someone who, you know, is... Uh, is open to, to having you prosecuted for war crimes. The other thing in, in, in the UK is I think that the divide is much more significant. I mean, I, you know, a labor party that includes any party that includes Jeremy Corbyn and Tony Blair is, I mean, that's, that is a, cause Jeremy Corbyn is significantly more to the left than Bernie Sanders. Yep. And I would actually say, like, Tony Blair at this point policy. is not significantly, but genuinely. And he's more to the right than Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton at this point, right? Like, like Tony Blair is maybe not even – I don't even know if I think of him as third way anymore, whatever the hell that even meant. But nothing like the actual kind of, you know, left that Corbyn represents to some degree. And incidentally, you know, Corbyn – has actually, in his own way, really tried to appease as much as he can the labor right, and it's you know it's it's obviously impossible. And I think you're right that dividing line in that case is not even markets per se; it's market supremacy. Because obviously Jeremy Corbyn and certainly not Bernie Sanders, no one here is talking about nationalizing industries or anything like that. Just you know talking about there are other values that can have equal you know competitive space when we make policy. And that's unacceptable to people like Tony Blair. You know, I think I think uh, I, I do think it would probably be an insult to the progressive federal party to compare them to Tony Blair. But, you know, that, uh, that's yes, a, the that's market a, is always a dividing line. That's exactly right. The more I talk to you and hear more about the progressive federal party and its role in South Africa, the more I realize we would be lucky in the United States to have democratic leadership 
that was on the same page as them. Right. Well, seriously, right? I mean, you talk about, well, they did want an end to apartheid, but what, right. what, what, what can we say that the Democratic Party leadership today is advocating for? This is what I can't figure out. They're not even advocating for any positive vision. The only positive vision is coming from the Sanders wing and the streets. Black Lives Matter, you know, uh, right. DSA. Right. Like, right. the... the the street groups, even the science marchers, have like more of a positive vision than the Democratic Party leadership. Yeah. So, so it it strikes me that the it is an insult to the Progressive Federal Party com to compare them to the Democrats in that sense. I think with Bernie Sanders, you know, looping back to that, and the this is I, I enjoy the irony of this because this is such a great neoliberal explanation of his behavior. What Bernie is is Bernie is basically like a McKinsey consultant going into a failed and toxic brand and trying to save them. Uh, and that's really, you know, like what the attitude should be, not whining that he won't become an official employee of the brand. You know, what's disturbing to me is that we've basically had two candidates, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, who, you know, independently of policy were extraordinarily charismatic and gifted politicians who uh, created excitement in electorates. Uh, and Democrats have won races with them. Or else, like in 2006, you know, the Republicans are so catastrophic and fuck up so badly that essentially Republicans get punished for their massive overreach. But there definitely has not been in the, in the modern era any type of democratic wave that was built on a, a, a vision that stood apart from somebody's personal charisma it's 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 even independent of charisma. I mean, you know, you, you had John Kerry in 2004 and it was like basically since that since since Gore even. I mean, it, it, they've been unable to articulate anything positive, really. It's all been about preventing greater damage from happening under a Republican regime. And right. that, no, and, and I think and I think the other part that yeah, sorry, finish your point. Sorry, go ahead. I wanted I, before we got too far from uh, the the sort of uh, uh, fine line that they're walking now. I mean, I keep thinking about this joint appearance with um, Tom Perez and, and Bernie Sanders, where it's like it's because <laughs> your idea of of a McKinsey consultant, right? It was like it right. it's sort of like watching that in real time, and and you had Perez essentially not willing, <laughs> not willing when given the opportunity to get on board with the the, the key piece of advice that Sanders was giving the party, right? Yes. So what you notice with a guy like Tom Perez is he's, he's, he's actually trying to do the Barack Obama thing. He's actually saying, like, we are better when we're united and we can, you know, and the reality is, is that Barack Obama can, and, and, I, and I actually think Obama is pretty genuine in his beliefs about these things to the extent that it matters, but he can make relatively banal sounding kind of historical small step center leftism sound very energetic and exciting. And that is a gift that he has. Uh, so when you look at these people like Perez who have very limited speaking ability and charisma, try to, you know, jump through the escape hatch of making like, you know, the kind of hard and clear divisions and arguments that Bernie's telling them to make to go back to that Obama speak. It's incredibly painful. And I think, you know, you just see the wheels turning. The wheels turning are like, well, if I if I make this condemnation of big donors like Bernie's asking me to do, well, you know, what about the next fundraiser in downtown Manhattan? You know, what about the next conference call with people in L.A.? Um, and also, I think, again, what keeps really disturbing me is I think that there's a big contingent of people who actually believe this stuff. That's what has been most extraordinary because, you know, I always kind of had maybe just because, you know, the first political figure as a kid that I really had any kind of awareness of was Bill Clinton. You know, there was always this sense that, you know, not literally, but like if Bill Clinton really knew that like the right move was to, you know, don Dashiki and say like, we're going to go up into the hills and wage <laughs> revolution. 
he would do it, right? Like, you know, I had to pull some of that agenda. So gotta, you know, gotta get our AK forty seven to reclaim capital. You know, like he would do that, you know. He was a responsive politician in that sense, yeah. He was a responsive politician, but now you have you know, and that and that's actually another classic Tony Blair line. Tony Blair gave a speech at, at a Labour Party conference once and he kind of basically said like guys like to his own party of course in that classical you know adversarial relationship that these center right leaders have with their center left to left wing bases in modern politics he was like look it's even worse than than i'm a sellout or i'm doing this to win elections it's even worse he goes i really believe this stuff and i've just been seeing that in our own like and i I saw Luke Savage, who's a you know, great writer, wrote this piece on the, the fixation of the West Wing. It's like there actually is a major contingent of people that this sort of nerdy, highly institutionally obsessive elevation of a very limited kind of cleverness, you know, centristy technocrat politics, you know, they weren't just doing that because they thought it was the right electoral formula they appear to actually be invested in this shit and it's you know it's terrifying both because it's completely not up to the tasks of what we need to reverse the crises we are in from inequality to figuring out how to govern silicon valley in the 21st century it's also terrifying because i'm starting to think you know you know i mean i uh, we are in a genuinely threatening position politically with Donald Trump and the far right. And even if we win because they overreach and fuck up so much, you know, another thing that David and I said in the article is that, you know, we're going to keep, we're keeping allowing them to, to, you know, to set the template. So, you know what, I mean, our standards have been so lowered it's like the people who it's like on one hand are, you know, think we're in the middle of Manchurian candidate part two. And I'm not discounting all the Russia stuff. I do think there is something there, though. I think it's, it's more of a organized crime than an espionage. Story. Absolutely. But they're listening to Evan McMullen. Evan McMullen is, I mean, look, I, I'm glad he opposes Trump, but he is a far right former CIA operative. And, you know, I mean, Bob Marley, Rasta don't work for no CIA, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's let's talk about that mentality. I mean, what are the yeah. what are the characteristics of it essentially? I mean, we sort of we, we've been talking about it without defining it, and and I think that yes. you know part of it uh, we talked about was a, a a willingness to see the market as uh, you know uh, a sort of sacrosanct element of uh, immune from a certain amount of policy and regulation. Um, yep. Part of it has to be. You mentioned the, the technocratic idea. So part of it is something of an embrace of elitism, right? That there's a, a class of people who are best and brightest, uh, Ivy League grads. But it's, it's, it's earned elitism, it, it quote unquote earned. That's the big difference, I think. The meritocracy. Meritocracy, right. Right. The, the, uh, the Democratic uh, National Convention last year struck me when I was watching it as like, um, watching go, like going to a work meeting at like a white collar kind of job where like middle managers are giving each other awards, you know, and everybody <laughs> everybody has to kind of like like smile and applaud. I mean, there's there's a certain there's a know it allism to it too, right? Like yes. th there's it, it's all very performative, and and the focus on the focus on process. There's this thread there with the focus on process and the idea of merit meritocracy and having um, the important kind of equality being equality of opportunity so that if everybody just gets in, has the chance to get into the right schools, whatever happens after that is not our problem. Right. Like that's like a, right. con that's a conservative idea too. Totally. Like the, the whole, the whole uh, philosophy of, meritocracy of focusing on equality of opportunity i mean these these are like these are ideas that were republican ideas 40 years ago you know and everybody would have recognized them as such and so oh, that oh, yeah that's a gener that's a generational aspect too when 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 we talk about the um 
the generational divide, we're still talking about an economic divide in the sense that uh, younger people see the hollowness of this ideology because the opportunities are meaningless to them. Yes. I noticed that. I don't know. Did you see Moonlight, Corey? No, I didn't see it. It's a great film. It's legitimately worth seeing. And one of the things that I noticed, just a brief aside, and I don't think this spoils anything, is that the young man that it chronicles, who's like a young gay dude in Miami, and it's it's bad. I mean, it's just a fucking bad situation. Uh, and there's this, you know, part of it involves him being at school, obviously. And what I love that the movie did was they didn't comment one way or another on his academic performance or his artistic prowess. Like, for all you knew, this was just, I mean, you know, he's a smart kid. He's not, he's not like a dumb kid, but he's like a normal kid who, because of his sexuality and his situation, is in an even worse situation of what is already tough to begin with because you're in a bad neighborhood in Miami at bad schools, right? And then it's much compounded by the fact that, you know, his sexuality. In so many other movies and so many other cultural products, they would underline the fact that you really should have sympathy for this kid by dropping something in like, you know, if you could stay in and get that chemistry grade, we can get you to college because this kid is smart. He's going places. Yeah, goodwill hunting. Uh, and he wasn't in that movie. They didn't drop any of that crap in. He's just a normal guy. But even on that cultural level, there's that constant thing that somehow if you can take a test, it's like a totemic representation of your value. Is it enough to just agree on the basics of the positive vision for all people? No, I don't. I think the point I would make is I think historically it's shown that it's not enough because there is, you know, especially, you know, taken in an American context, there is a lot of, you know, history of. You know, the, and, and I even would hear it sometimes, you know, when Black Lives Matter was first protesting Bernie, my attitude was, was great. Protest everybody. I think Bernie's better than Hillary, but that's not saying anything. You know, great. Go and protest. That's a good thing. And I would get, you know, people get pissed. Like, how dare these people protest? They don't know how good Bernie is. And I think that's the, you know, that's where it is. That's when you go, oh, okay. Like, this is the, that's that racist socialism we've been hearing about you know it's more challenging but obviously any type of serious progressive politics needs to include all of these things but i do think that the the grounding of a social some type of serious socialist mission even if it's you know again bernie sanders social democracy whatever that does start to ground everything in a certain way because on because on the flip side i don't understand how you can have a you know serious and passionate you know and justified reaction obviously to how despicable racism or homophobia is i on the flip side don't understand how that doesn't lead to a version of socialism so in other words i don't see how you can have a real robust socialist politics that doesn't understand the particulars of race and then conversely, I don't understand how you can have a, you know, adamant condemnation of the horrific nature of racism without it actually also leading to see how those things also function in capitalism and how we need to have spaces of universal rights and universal, you know, uh, uh, basic things for everyone. I mean, I think they work together if we're following the logic. I think and that I, is where I think the socialist piece is important. I think it is hap- what you're describing is happening. I mean, that recent yes. history with Black Lives Matter, I mean, there was a centrist Democrat campaign to attempt to co-opt it and it didn't work. Yep. I mean, that was one of the remarkable right. stories of 2016 that hasn't quite been appreciated yet um, by the consultant class in the media is that the Democrats did try to co-opt Black Lives Matter and it didn't work. Right. And, it, and it hasn't worked with, right. with Sanders base, too. And, and you know, to the extent that there's a national Black Lives Matter uh, leadership, it saw through that in a way that deserves a, a tremendous amount of credit. And I think that that movement has become much more economically populist in the last year or so. Yep. So, you know, perhaps uh, perhaps the sort of the centrist uh, 
centrist uh, institutional party leadership is um, is just going to be showing themselves the door, <laughs> right? Because all of these, uh, the more radical movements that are pushing for change, now they might have different core issues, but they're all sort of coalescing around, um, you know, the centrist leadership not doing enough for them. Good piece, Thank by the you. way. That was Michael Brooks. Thanks, Michael. Now allow me to introduce Louise Mensch. I'm sorry to say this interview was recorded before The Baffler revealed in a May 2 story by Emmett Renzen called Operation Mensch that Louise was in fact herself a Russian agent. Would have been nice to know. Hello? Louise. This is Louise Mensch, right? Do I have the right number? Yes. Okay. Uh, I was surprised that you were listed. Sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. My husband insists that we stay this way. I see. Uh, well, uh, again, thanks for coming on. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. So when did you realize that you were different than other people? Well, I, I've always kind of known. I especially realized it when I was on P. I'm sorry, on T? On T. MP. MP. When I... MP, yes. When I, when, oh. I, when I was in the UK, when I was a youngster, I was a very nerdy and ambitious, and I idolized Thatcher, and I was determined to be famous and to be rich, and I knew, I knew then that I could do it, and that's kind of when I really realized that this was my calling and this is what separated me from the masses. That's great. You were. Uh, you. I I looked at your Wikipedia page. You were. You were MP for Corby, which is the borough of Corby and the district of East Northamptonshire, including Barnwell, Dryden, Fineshade, Earthling Borough, Kings Forest, Lower Neen, Livedon, Undal, Prenbendal, Round Saxon, Rounds Windmill, Ringstead, Stanwyck, Thrapston, and Woodford. Is this a real place? Yes. Who who were these people that elected you to parliament? What did you do before what what were you doing before you ran for parliament? Did you run for office before that? I'm just just trying to understand where you came from, Louise. I wrote books to empower young women. Well your and your husband was a, a record promoter, is that is that right? Uh yes, that's correct. For for Metallica? Yes. He once described himself I'm reading a newspaper article here it said he he describes himself as left of trotsky mm-hmm. is your husband a stalinist we have disagreements about politics um i would not call him a stalinist though i think that my husband is not affiliated with those uh, nasty russians i see and i resent that you would ask that i he i just was reading something that he said i, I didn't think it would offend you it's been out there okay. for like my husband I mean, my husband and I, we say things. We don't, always, we don't always mean the truth when we say them. We may say beliefs. We have many beliefs. Your husband... I, you're, it's complicated. It's hard for you to understand. You've also spoken of taking hard drugs in your 20s while working in the music industry. Um, yes, yes. Could you recommend some drugs? No. My days with Nigel Kennedy are behind me. And no one should follow in my footsteps. I don't want to tell you what drugs I did because I don't want to glorify them. They didn't interfere with your superpowers, clearly. So so what, if you could summarize your 30,000-odd tweets, or even just taking today's 200 tweets, what what is actually happening? What is it that you want to tell the world? Donald Trump is most assuredly a traitor, as my sources have told me. Yeah, so who who are who are your sources? I, I, I take it you, you, you must have some because you're so committed to, to truth. What, who, who? Well, Corey, you, you should know as a journalist that uh, you shouldn't ask a fellow journalist to disclose her sources publicly. But I, I'm a journalist, and I, almost every story I, I have sources who are using their names. I, 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 everybody knows who my sources are because I, I quote them in, in the paper or whatever. Well, you see, that's the trouble is because I'm dealing with very high-level, important people, which I'm sure is something that you don't do frequently. Uh, they're very, they're deep in the intelligence community. They can't be outed. Their lives would be at stake. 
they they could be murdered like Andrew Breitbart was murdered by Putin. Andrew Andrew Breitbart died of a, a a heart attack, if I recall correctly. Um, I believe that he was murdered by Putin to pave the way for Steve Bannon. For another Breitbart guy, <laughs> but it doesn't make any sense. Breitbart died like five years ago or 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 more How, it, it was it was years before trump was even going to be running for president louise it doesn't that doesn't matter it's the truth the truth is fantastical sometimes but it's still true but okay how does putin see these things it's like it's almost like you're saying he's like sauron from lord of the rings and he can just see everything that's going on he has lots and lots of it's obvious. And this is this is the other thing. You have a list of of spy, his Putin spies. Is that right? In the I know there's a well, lot of names, but what 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 kind of? Can you give me an indication of? Like Seth Abramson. Seth is also a, a a Twitter personality, right? Yes. And he also has uh, a quite a following uh, based on his. Um, allegations about Russia masterminding American politics over the last year or so. Is that is that right? Yes. But you don't agree with him uh, about no, some things? No, he's a spy. He's a spy. Why, why, if he's basically making the same argument than you are, why do you think that Seth Abramson is a Russian spy? I think that Putin sent him to discredit me. But was he... But you, you agree about pretty much everything, right? I, what, how does that discredit you? He's taking my work. They're all taking my work, don't you see? Yeah, I meant to ask you, is this, is this your job? Is this the, the tweeting? Is this, is this your job? What is your job? It is. Well, I have my blog. Um, I tweet, yes. I, I, I work very hard at it. In fact, I, I actually haven't, I haven't left the house in few days because i've been so busy with all the information coming in um who, who else is on the on the list well the, the entire staff of buzzfeed uh the baffler is definitely on my list the entire staff at the baffler i i'm really only doing this so i can discredit the baffler uh and everyone else really uh i would say the social media managers at the fbi i have been incessantly adding them with tips but they don't listen to me uh they've never responded to my very important information. Uh, there's the U.S. Strategic Command, which blocked me. Um, I would say also the uh, entire staff at the Hartford Airport in Connecticut, uh, which, as you will know, because I tweeted about it, there were Russian biplanes there. Uh, so you're saying everyone at the airport was a Russian spy because the planes... How do you know they were Russian spy planes? Are you are you clairvoyant? Are you are you saying that you're clairvoyant? No, I have super I have a superpower, but I'm not clairvoyant. Don't be ridiculous. You saying that every everyone who disagrees with you is a Russian spy, and you don't have any proof. You just want us to trust you, and and you won't reveal your sources. Uh, you won't say how they've verified any information. And yet you you hope people just take your word for it when you accuse other people of being Russian agents? Correct. I mean, look at my following. Look at my brand. People trust me. You know, frankly, I'm, I'm not convinced that you're not still taking hard drugs on a regular basis. How are you maintaining this output? I mean, you've tweeted 200 times today and done a blog post. I, I drink a lot of coffee. And I, I guess it, it, it almost works in your favor that I, I can't make... I've got this blog post open, and I, I can't make any sense of it. I, I actually have no idea what you're saying here. It's titled, Did Donald Trump Commission Russia's Hack of the U.S. Election Himself? And that's your headline. And then you talk about um, sources linked to the intelligence community say that Donald Trump accepted laundered Russian money, which, through shell companies, supported Russian hackers as they attacked America and then supported WikiLeaks and Julian Assange as he published the results of those hacks. And, and, and it goes on from there, and, and you never actually revisit this claim that Donald Trump commissioned the hacks 
himself, but you you talk about these companies having links to other companies and those companies having links to still more companies and 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 I just I I can't make any sense of it, Louise. Like what how can how can I get more Twitter followers? The best way to do it is tweet frequently. You need to tweet very, very frequently at all hours of the day. So tweet a lot. Is that... Mm-hmm. Say the truth. Speak the truth. People want to hear the truth. The truth. And the, and, and, and the, and the truth is... It, it, it does seem a little bit circular is all. I'm trying, I'm trying to trying to get my head around it sleep on it (laughs) um thank you uh louise thank you mensch well that was horrible now i'll be talking to hannah gaze the baffler's social media editor who was kind enough to put me in touch with louise congrats to hannah who will be leaving the baffler in the fall to study russian orthodoxy at harvard divinity school none of it makes sense i mean she strings together things that are she basically takes things that are fairly true and just inflates them to the point of absurdity. I, you know, you sent me this blog post and it's like, I rarely read her blog. I mean, I don't follow her or anything. I just like, she just makes me too fucking crazy. But I'm reading this and I'm like, there's not even a link. Like if she's getting all this stuff from like Google and like, she's just stringing together Google results is what it looks like. Yeah, pretty Cause, much. Because even when her sources are online, like these pictures from like British corporate registry, you know, it's like I've used that in research. I mean, why not just link? Why not just link to it? It's just like screen screenshots of of Google results. I mean, is that is that really what she's working from? It's crazy. I think I think it's a mixture of that, and she basically just like has taken a nar- just like a narrative of sort of like what Russia may have done in certain Eastern European countries and just kind of assumed that that was the case for everything. It's bizarre. And when she talks about her intelligence community-linked source, is she just she is just talking about like people like John Schindler, right? Yeah, I think it's like people like John Schindler. I mean, basically people who may have had once had ties to the intelligence community and no longer do. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, giving her the benefit of the doubt, I mean... There are still a lot of crazy people in the intelligence community, too. I mean, yeah, you know, Mike Flynn was head of the DIA. Like that—that that still baffles me. <laughs> so, you know, giving her the benefit of the doubt, maybe people are talking to her who are actually connected, but that doesn't excuse the kind of things that she puts out there that just are don't make any sense. And it's like she's not being held to any sort of standard, from what I can tell. And then it's like, what's up? What's up with the editors? Who are like, and the producers who are looking at this same stuff and going, "Oh yeah, let's let's put her on TV." I mean, she'll do it. I guess that's probably why she's gotten all these clips because she will go on TV and she will say things that are. I I can't really think of what else it is because she's not really saying anything that makes a tremendous amount of sense. It's it's all really weird. It's really weird to see all of. It was really weird to see all of this in the news. Like somehow we had become Ukraine or something, and like. People have just decided that oh oh yes yes the Rus- the Russians are here to install Poroshenko aka Trump. Thanks to Hannah for that palate cleanser. Thanks Michael. Thanks Hannah and uh, Louise. I'm Corey Pine. Talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Bye.